how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Proverbs Part 1. Well now, Proverbs is a strange book to be in the Bible. I don't think any of you would have put it in the Bible, but God did. So it's part of his word. And when you first read it, it seems to be a jumble of folk sayings or just common sense, except that sense isn't all that common. There are humorous observations which really have you laughing. Above all, they don't seem very spiritual. They don't uh, talk about your private or your public devotions much. Very down to earth. Some of them are pretty obvious. Poverty is the ruin of the poor. I would have thought anybody could have said that. (laughs) A happy heart makes the face cheerful. Well, we knew that. Better to live in the attic than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel not his own. That's a profound observation. And many of them seem more entertaining than edifying, and some actually seem downright immoral. How about this one? A bribe does wonders. It will bring you before men of importance. Unfortunately, in the authorised version, that was translated, a man's gift will make room for him. And we've given such a spiritual meaning to that. But it means a money gift, and that'll get you in somewhere. That's quite an observation. It's certainly true, but is it moral? Many, of course, have found their way into everyday speech. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Comes straight out of this book. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Pride goes before a fall. Stolen food is sweet. Iron sharpens iron. We're familiar with these, and many people who use these proverbs haven't a clue where they came from, but they came from our Bible. We recognise other people in the book of Proverbs. The woman who talks too much. The wife who's always nagging. The aimless youth hanging around street corners. The neighbour who's always dropping in and staying too long. The friend who's unbearably cheerful first thing in the morning. You, you, you recognise all kinds of people here, but do you recognise yourself? I think that's the key to reading the book of Proverbs. As James says, you read the Bible like a mirror, but if you forget what you saw, it'll be no use to you. Well, at least it deals with life as it really is. This is not life in church, this is life in the street, in the office, in the shop, life at home. And it's really saying godliness is worked out in real life. It's not just something you do on Sundays in church. It's how you live through the week in every other situation. There are 900 proverbs here and they cover the whole of life. They cover every conceivable subject, wisdom and folly, pride and humility, love and lust, wealth and poverty, work and leisure, masters and servants, husbands and wives, friends and relatives. I'm always amused at that phrase, you know, when you draw up a list of guests for a wedding, you have friends, relatives. Uh, One list is those you have to invite and the other list is those you want to invite. 
as if relatives can't be friends. <clears throat> it's about life and death. It's all here. And uh, that's why it's such a relevant book. But it's not religious. There are no priests in this book and no prophets. There are some kings, but that's all. We would call this secular life, except that's a very dangerous word. It is not a biblical word. We should never use it. Though I've heard it used in conversations here already. There is nothing secular except sin in God's sight. It is the Greeks who divided life into sacred and secular. And it's a very dangerous thing. Don't ever say you've got a secular job. Because in biblical terms, that would mean you're in a sinful job and you oughtn't to be in it. But every job is sacred to God. That is your sacred vocation, whether you're a computer operator, taxi driver or preacher. God would rather have a good taxi driver than a bad missionary. And all work ranks the same to God. So let's get rid of this idea that life is in two compartments, sacred and secular. Book of Proverbs is about living the sacred life in the secular sphere and making that sacred too. So God is interested in every part of life. And therefore, this book is about where most of our waking life is lived, which is not in church. I would call it the key to the good life. What is the good life? The television comedy program, The Good Life, uh, gave one interpretation of that, but the Bible gives quite a different one. Usually people in the world talk about the good life in material terms. The Bible talks about it in moral terms. And in the Bible, folly, foolishness, is not a mental thing, it's a moral thing. And wisdom is not mental, it's moral. To put it simply, this book is about how to make the most of life and also about how to waste it. And a fool throws his life away. A wise man uses it well. When you get to the end of life and look back on it, will you feel you've wasted it or made the most of it? That's terribly important because it's terribly easy to waste life and we only get one bite at the cherry. We only get one chance at life. You don't get another. We get one life. You got one chance <clears throat> to use yesterday and not waste it. You got one chance to use today and not waste it. You never get the day back. And as my father used to tell us as children frequently, he said, now life is too short to waste a single moment, but it's long enough to live out God's purpose for it. So this is what the book is about. Don't be a fool and throw your life away and waste it and get to the end of it feeling you've been on a roundabout and you've got off just where you got on and you've lost your money. But get to the end of the life and look back and say, I've made the most of my life. I've fulfilled what God wanted done in it. Now this is why there are a number of books in the Bible we call wisdom literature. And the Bible is to make us wise. It will not make you clever or smart or popular, or famous, or wealthy. But it can make you wise. That's why God gave us this book. And some books, like the book of Proverbs, or in the New Testament, the letter of James, are there as wisdom books to help to make us wise in how we use life. In a word, salvation is very near the word salvage 
which we used to use in World War II for what people call recycling today. And when I preach on salvation today, I constantly use the word recycling. If somebody asks me what business I'm in, I say I'm in the recycling business. They always smile as if that's a good thing to do. And uh, if they ask, are you recycling metal or paper or tin? I say, no, people. Because they're the real problem. They're the real cause of pollution of our planet. And recycling means to rescue something before it's thrown away on the rubbish dump and make it useful for its original purpose. And so we're recycling all kinds of things these days, bottles and newspapers and everything else. Now hell, said Jesus, is like a rubbish dump. It's like the Valley of Gehenna outside Jerusalem where all the garbage was thrown. That's why he always used the verb throne of hell. He didn't say God sends you to hell. He says you will be thrown into hell because rubbish you throw away. But you can save rubbish before it's too far gone, get it recycled and use it again for its original purpose. That's exactly what salvation is all about. God is recycling human beings so that they can be used again for the original purpose for which he made them. Got it? That's the whole business. Recycling rubbish is what salvation is all about before it's thrown away for good. Now therefore, God is in the business of turning sinners into saints, of turning fools into wise people, or in a very simple phrase, salvation is about turning silly people into sensible people. That's, what, that's why Jesus died. He didn't just die to save us from hell, he died so that we might be recycled. He was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He says, give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness and we'll get you recycled and able to serve God again. That's what it's all about. And a silly man will waste his life. A sensible man will use it properly. And so Proverbs is about what we are saved for. Not about what we're saved by, but what we're saved for. Very often we misquote a text in the New Testament and uh, it says God is able to save to the uttermost and we usually translate that God is able to save from the guttermost. But that's not what it says. He's able to save to the uttermost. It's what we are saved to that is important. God is saving us to be sensible people who can make the most of life and be useful to him again. And that's why I'm not saved. I, I never say that. I'm being saved. I'm on the way of salvation. I'm not fully saved yet. This body is not saved yet. That's still heading for the rubbish bin. But it's going to be redeemed. I'm going to get a new one. So salvation is not just from sin and silliness, it's to sainthood, it's to being sensible and using life properly for God. And Proverbs therefore is about what we're saved to. Now of course many could object and say there's a lot of sense outside the Bible. Yes, there is. Since men and women are in the image of God, everybody has some sense. But by nature we don't have enough sense to make the most of life. Our sense is very limited in its application until we're redeemed. It's only when you're redeemed by Christ 
that you're able to make the most of life and what God intended it to be. So that in a sense, all the world's sense is silly. It leads to death and hell in the long term. And however sensible people may be about some parts of life, about the whole of it, they can be very, very silly and throw it away. Now God is the source of all wisdom. He is called in Scripture the all-wise God and the only wise God. And he's very wise and wisdom is a free gift from him. But often that gift comes to us through other people. And God has chosen to pass on his wisdom through others to us, especially through parents, grandparents, and those who've been around a few more corners than we have and who've learned the hard way from life. If we can learn from them, that will make us wise. Alas, too often young people say, I don't want to listen to my parents. I remember a Christian couple coming to me and telling me that <clears throat> they wanted to get married but none of their parents wanted them to. But they said, that doesn't matter, does it, because they're not Christians. I said, that's being very foolish. They've all been round more corners than you have and they know you too well and you should listen to what they have to say. It's not easy, is it? And Christians especially are not uh, always willing to learn from those who are not Christians. And Jesus told an extraordinary parable once about an unjust steward. Extraordinary story about a... In it, everybody was criminal, crooked. And yet he said, sometimes the children of darkness show more sense than the children of light. And that is, alas, sometimes true. So, get wisdom. The man who wrote this, of course, I talked about when we were doing the book of Kings, Solomon, the man who, when he became king, asked for one thing from God when God offered him anything in the world. And he asked for wisdom and he got it and God gave him the other things as well, fame, power, wealth, but he got the wisdom to govern others, to be a judge and to be just. And that classic story about the two prostitutes arguing over the one baby that had survived, saying, that's my baby. And he said, cut the baby in half. Real wisdom. God said, I will give you a wise and discerning heart if, and I suppose if is the most important word in the Bible. There's always a condition attached to God's promises. I will give you a discerning and wise heart if, you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. We always need to notice the if that God puts in because he wants to bless and he promises to, but the if is a vital condition. And he became so famous for his wisdom that the Queen of Sheba came not just to see his wealth but to hear his wisdom. Made a long journey because she was a queen and she needed to be wise and she thought, where can I get it? I'll go to that man I've heard about, the king of the Jews, Solomon. That's where she got it. She must have sat and listened to many of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs because he collected Proverbs as well as wives and he collected 900 Proverbs and 700 wives. A little bit of balance. I told you about his three books, Song of Songs, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He wrote the first when he was a young man and it's what I would call a heart book, very emotional. He's a young lover at that stage, so much in love that he forgets about God altogether. 
The book of Proverbs is a middle-aged book, but it's a book which I would say is a book of the will. It is essentially a moral book. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I would say, is a book of the mind. It's essentially an intellectual book. It's a philosophical book as he meditates on his life and whether he's achieved anything with it. So we have the young lover, the middle-aged father, and the elderly philosopher writing these three books of wisdom, and they all communicate wisdom, often in a negative form from his bad experience, but it's still wisdom to learn from other people's mistakes. He composed Proverbs himself. He had a knack for doing that. And he would put things together in a little pithy saying after he'd concluded something from his own observation, but he also collected them from others. And one of the most intriguing things about the book of Proverbs is that many of them are Arabic, collected from an Arab philosopher. And another whole chapter of them are Egyptian Proverbs, which he probably collected through his wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. But Solomon recognized that there was sense in the world and he didn't mind where he got it as long as it was wisdom in God's sight. And then he would bring it and put it in a context of God, which of course the others didn't. And that's the secret. You can learn common sense from unbelievers, but in unbelievers it's in a godless context. It's in the wrong framework. And you can bring that sense and bring it into a God framework. That's why God is mentioned 90 times in the book of Proverbs. But it's always the name of God, Yahweh, which means it's the God of Israel we're talking about. Not just a vague God that anybody believes in, but the specific God of Israel. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but odder still for those who choose the Jewish God and spurn the Jews. And it is the Jewish God who is the only God who exists. And all common sense needs to be brought into that framework. There is one section of this book, actually, that was collected by Hezekiah years later. And he tried to collect as many of Solomon's Proverbs that were remembered by people but had not been written down. And there's one section later in the book that are the Proverbs of Solomon but collected by the scribes of Hezekiah many, many years later. So it's a mixture. And the book as we have it was not completed in Solomon's time quite clearly, but was added to later. Probably it was completed about 550 BC. Now before we look at the book itself, there are two very important things, sorry, three important things to say about the nature of the book. Number one, it is proverbial. Now, what do I mean by that? That sounds a bit obvious. It's a book of Proverbs. It is not a book of promises. It is a book of Proverbs, and a proverb is a proverb, proverb, but not a promise. But so often I hear a verse from Proverbs quoted as if it's a divine promise, and it's not. The difference is this. Let's take the word proverb, it's a Latin word, it comes from pro, which means for, and verba, which means word. And a proverb, a proverb, is a word for a situation. It's an appropriate fitting word that fits the situation, a timeless truth that can be used in different situations in life, a short summary of human experience. The Hebrew word proverb is mashal, which means to resemble or to be like something. 
The parables of Jesus are called by that word. A parable is a mashal, mashal which means it is like this. And you say that in um, ordinary speech when you're explaining something to a child. You say, well, it's like this. That's exactly the meaning of the Hebrew word mashal proverb. It's like this, you see, right? And very often Jesus began a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Well, it's like this. And this is how ordinary human wisdom is passed on. Why do we have to do this, mummy? Well, you see, it's like this. And you pass on the wisdom. And why you shouldn't touch that, or why you shouldn't eat that. Now, a proverb is therefore a general observation on life, whereas a promise is a particular obligation. Now, get those, that difference very clearly. A proverb is a general observation. A promise is a particular obligation. Now, let me just try and illustrate this as simply as I can. Here's a proverb. Paulson has a passion for pu punctuality. That is true, actually. I hate being late. I'm sorry I was late this morning. I hate it. Uh, now, that's a proverb. It is a general observation, and if you know me, you would know that's a true proverb. But to say Porson has a passion for punctuality is one thing, but to say Porson made a promise to be here by 9.15 is quite another. That's a particular obligation. And I am not morally to blame if the proverb breaks down, but I am to blame if a promise breaks down. Do you follow me? Therefore, a proverb is only generally true. It is not always true. And to apply a proverb to every situation and expect it to work is wrong. Now, do you see what I mean by people who take a, ver a verse out of Proverbs and turn it into a promise, claim it, and it doesn't work, and their faith then goes through a crisis? because they've taken what is a general observation and made it a particular obligation for God. And Proverbs, therefore, don't always work out. Let's take one. Honesty is the best policy. That is generally true. But I know people who've lost a fortune through being honest. I know people who've lost a business through being honest. It doesn't always work, but it generally works. Do you follow me? And therefore, in general, if you are honest, it is the best policy. But in a particular situation, it may be the worst policy. Furthermore, you can therefore get proverbs that contradict each other. Let's take two. More haste, less speed. He who hesitates is lost. Now, those two exactly contradict each other, and you've gone to an auction house where they're auctioning antiques, which proverb are you going to claim as a promise? More haste, less speed, or he who hesitates is lost? <laughs> Do you see what I'm getting at? There's actually one verse in the book of Proverbs that begins with these words, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. The second half of the verse then says, Answer a fool according to his folly. And within one proverb, you've got an absolute contradiction. Wisdom is knowing when which proverb fits. You got it? 
Knowing all the Proverbs is general knowledge that you can use, but in a particular situation you need wisdom to know which is the right one for that situation. Now let me take two verses of the book of Proverbs which I've heard used as promises all over the church. Here's one. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. And people have opened Christian bookshops and rest homes and I don't know what else and they've said we committed our plans to the Lord, he gave us this promise that it would succeed because we committed it all to him and now it's gone bust and we're bankrupt. Now I'm not talking about theory here, this has happened all over the place because people took that verse and said, I claim it as a promise to God for my business. But it isn't a promise, it's a proverb and it is generally true that if you commit to the Lord whatever you do, you will succeed. It is generally true but not always. When you claim a proverb as a promise, you are putting a particular obligation on God which he has not undertaken. Let's take another which will come home to many of you here this morning. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. And parents with children who are not believers say, I claim that promise, I trained him up in the way he should go and he's not going in it. Now that promise is not a guarantee, it is generally true. I've always been amused when I see young people who've been rebellious to the nth degree against their parents, as soon as they get married they revert to their parents' behaviour to the last <laughs> pin in the nappy, you know, you notice that. And in fact you do as you go older, you revert to the habits you were taught as a child. It is generally true that if you train up a child in the Christian way, when they are old they will not depart from it, when they are old notice. And it is generally true but it is not always true because your children are not puppets and you can't force them to go your way and they will reach an age when they make their own decision and they are free to do that. Do you see what I mean? And many parents have had heartache over that and said, I claimed that, God promised. It hasn't worked. Now I'm throwing this out because we're dealing with a book of Proverbs, not a book of promises and these things are generally true and that's why, that's why we should read them and live by them. But to claim each particular verse because it fits that situation as a promise God has made to you is to abuse Scripture. This is what happens, you see, when we take a verse out of context and quote it as if it could have come from any book in the Bible. The context of every verse in the Bible is the book in which it occurs and you should not quote a text if you haven't asked what book does it come from and why was that book written and then you'll get it right. But it's so easy, especially with verse numbers attached to quote John 3.16 or whatever, out of context and out of the book in which it was written. See, God didn't give us the chapter and verse numbers in the Bible, it was two bishops who added that and they made a mess of it anyway. For a thousand years the Christian church had a Bible with no chapter and verse numbers and boy did they know the Scriptures. You've really got to know them to find your way around without verse numbers. But now that we've got verse numbers we keep quoting a text out of context and take these verses out of context and they sound like promises but they're not the Proverbs. That's the first major key we need when we read this book. 
The second major key that we need is that these are poetic. You see, a proverb is a pithy saying. It's presented in a form that's terribly easy to remember, usually because it's poetry. It's got a rhyme in it somehow. Porson has a passion for punctuality. I deliberately worded that proverb because it rhymes, do you see? It's alliterative. A stitch in time saves nine is much more easily remembered than a stitch in time saves 17. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? It, it's, it's got a, a little poem in it. Let me uh, translate um, a proverb for you. In advance of committing yourself to a course of action, consider carefully your circumstances and options. Or, to rephrase that, there are certain corrective measures for minor problems which, when taken early on in a course of action, forestall major problems from arising. Those are both translations of look before you leap. You see? If you ever watch the TV show Yes Minister, you know that Humphrey is marvellous at doing just that. It's civil service language, it's solicitor's language. But if you're going to communicate wisdom in a memorable way, you've got to put it in a very poetic form that will slip off people's tongue easily. Look before you leap, much better than look before you venture. You know, it's got that alliterative, poetic feel about it. Now, Hebrew poetry is quite unique. It's based not on rhyme, as most of our poetry is, but on rhythm. And the rhythm is a rhythm not only of beat or meter, but it's a rhythm of thought. And invariably, Hebrew poetry is a pair of lines, two lines, and they relate to each other in three different ways. And the first word in the second line tells you which way it is. If the first word in the second line is and, then it's what we call a synonymous parallel. It says the same thing, but in different words. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's the same thought, but differently expressed. Do you follow it? And in the Hebrew language, there will be a rhythm there that makes it easy to say. That's one kind of double parallelism, synonymous. Same thing said a different way. Then, if the second line begins with the word but, it's what we call antithetic parallelism. For example, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. You see the parallelism? But it's the opposite now. It's an antithesis of the first statement. Got it? Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. There's a kind of opposite there. And then if the, th the first word in the second line is for, it is what we call a synthetic parallelism, which means the thought of the first line is taken a step further. It advances the thought in the second line. Stay away from a foolish man, for you will not find knowledge on his lips. See, the thought of staying away is taken further and you're given a reason why you should stay away from him. Now, all the Proverbs fit into this kind of pattern. They're either and, but, or for. And they either repeat the thought in different words, or contradict the thought with its opposite, 
or take the thought a step further, but in a kind of rhythmic way. Very memorable, not so easy to remember in English because the rhythm is lost in translation. But this is how parents passed on things to their children and how we still do with everyday proverbs. A nice little rhyming proverb. There are other devices in proverbs. For example, there are acrostics. Now that means a long proverb that uses the letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, or in Hebrew, Aleph and so on. But um, the proverb, each line begins with a new letter. And one of the uh, passages which most people know well is the final chapter 31, the description of the ideal wife. And it's a very good list for a young man to read. And it's, it's an acrostic. Each line starts with the next letter of the alphabet and reminds me of an old song that was sung, this dates me dreadfully, A, you're adorable, B, you're so beautiful, C, you're a cutie in my arms. Did you ever hear that one? Well, that's what we call an acrostic, an ABC. And those are used and then numbers are used. There's one chapter particularly that's full of for three things and four or these are six things God hates and you can learn them on your fingers. So there are various devices but basically it is a poetical approach. And the third basic thing I want to say is that this book is patriarchal. It's proverbial, it's poetic and it's patriarchal. It's all presented as advice to a youth from his dad. Incidentally, this is one of the books in the Bible that has not a single statement in it for women. It is a man's book and in fact a lot of the Bible is written directly for men. You must have noticed that the New Testament is not addressed to brothers and sisters but to brothers. Have you ever asked why? One of the fundamental assumptions behind Scripture is this, if the men are right, the women and the children will be. That's an assumption all the way through Scripture. If the father of a family is right, then the family will tend to be right. That's why the Scripture goes hard after men and why for the last five or six years I've had Men for God conferences even in this room and every few weeks I've had a, a day with men and all the letters of thanks I get are from the women. <laughs> I had one recently from a wife who said, I much prefer the husband you send home to the husband I sent to the meeting. Notice the key phrase, the husband I sent to the meeting. But anyway, <laughs> I send them home to be the head of the house. <laughs> but uh, you see, the scripture is looking at the fathers, looking at the men and saying, get the men godly. And you women know that's true. And so this book goes hard after the men, after a young man. And here is a father desperately trying to stop the young man doing what he did and trying to stop him sowing his wild oats because he's learned the hard way. He's trying to pass on this wisdom from a father to a son. Solomon was clearly middle-aged when he wrote this book and he did not want his son to be like himself. As I've told you already, there are two ways to get wisdom. One is to take it from people older than you are and learn even from their mistakes as well as from their positive advice. The school of experience, yes, colours black and blue, you pick that up. And the school motto is live and learn. 
if you learn it by yourself. So you either learn it from other people, which is the quick and easy way, which is the school of example, and you learn both good and bad, and the colours are red and green for that school. Either don't do this or go. And the motto is listen and learn. The slow, hard way by yourself, the foolish way, the school of experience, colours black and blue, and the motto is live and learn. You can either listen and learn or live and learn. Quick way, slow way. Take wisdom from others or try and get it for yourself. So, even though this is a patriarchal book from a father to a son and addressed to men, it's about women. And the advice is not just from a father, but it's also from a mother. That last chapter is from a mother. And it's from a father and a mother to a son. The father concentrates on the bad women he's to avoid, and the mother concentrates on the good woman he's to look for. There's wisdom, isn't it? That tells you quite a lot, doesn't it? But actually the whole book is a sandwich. The beginning, the middle and the end, in the red there, are advice to youth. From a father in the first two cases and from a mother at the end. And then there are various bits of filling in the sandwich in between. But that's enough for our first talk and we'll start the second talk by looking at more detail in the outline. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.